This is an ABC News special. COVID-19, what you need to know. Here is ABC News correspondent Aaron Katursky. As we near the end of the month, there are signs of an abating crisis. The coronavirus infection rate is going down. Hospital capacity is nearing normal levels. The USNS Comfort is leaving New York. And the sprawling field hospital at the Javits Convention Center in Manhattan is closing. There is still, though, a lot of death, probably more than the 60,000 deaths that official statistics show. There is also a lot of economic pain. Gross domestic product shrank by 4.8%, the first negative number in six years, and probably not the worst of it. There is also, finally, some hope for a treatment. The flu drug remdesivir showed promise in a clinical trial, shortening the period patients experience symptoms and potentially slightly reducing the mortality rate. Dr. Anthony Fauci made the announcement at the White House. The data shows that remdesivir has a clear-cut, significant, positive effect in diminishing the time to recovery. We're joined here from South Shore Health outside Boston by Dr. Simone Wilds, who's an ABC News medical contributor. So what do you make of this? Well, I think it's great news that we have um, some positive um, news on treatment options for coronavirus. Um, uh, So this was a study that shows patients who got remdesivir, um, whether they were treated for 10 days or five days, had similar outcome. They improved, which is great news, especially as we try to find what are the best options we have for treating these very sick patients. This is a study of about 2,000 patients. Is that big enough? I mean, we always like larger randomized control studies, so not the greatest in terms of numbers, but I think it's a good enough indicator for us that there might be some hope with this um, treatment. What's the sense of how it works? So um, remdesivir is a broad-spectrum antiviral drug, and it works by blocking a particular enzyme that's required for viral replication. And so remdesivir gets in and blocks the coronavirus from working. South Shore Health is giving this, right? So I am a part of a clinical trial. I'm one of the co-investigators for this drug. We haven't actually started the study yet, but going to be up and running fairly soon. So what will you be looking for as that begins? Well, we're going to see, you know, first of all, what's the outcome? How well are people doing once we give them this drug? Are they recovering quite quickly? Is there any major side effects from the drug? How hopeful should we be about this? I always like to keep hope in everything I do, but I think that we have to get more information but we want to keep that hope with us. Dr. Simone Wilds, an ABC News medical contributor at South Shore Health in Weymouth, Massachusetts. There are new concerns about the nation's food supply as meat processing plants have turned into coronavirus hotspots. We're joined by Stu Leonard, who operates Stu Leonard's, a grocery chain in Connecticut, New York, and New Jersey. Your customers panic buying? People are panic buying today at Stu Leonard's. Couldn't believe it when I walked down in the meat aisle today. I know the packing plants out in the Midwest need people to speed up their production lines and so forth. We need butchers right now in our meat department. People are buying two, three, four, five packages of steaks, ground beef, 
and chicken is flying too. First it was toilet paper and paper towels. Now it's it's meat and poultry. That's right. It is meat and poultry. Is is We cannot literally cut it fast enough and put it on the shelf. We keep hearing about all of these processing facilities. How is it that there's enough and how are you finding the supply chain? Well, I have talked to the entire supply chain. I've basically followed a stake all the way from the, the, the cattle in Montana, all the way through the chain. And I would say right now that the problem that America is facing is that there's a, about a 33% reduction in capacity at these packing plants. There's only seven out of 10 stakes you know, that are being produced roughly. How do you then say to people, don't panic buy? Well, when I talk to our rancher out in Montana, he's got 35,000 head of cattle. Now, if he normally would sell, send 100 of them into the packing plants, he's only sending seven of 10. So there's, only, there's a reduction right there. And the packing plants are doing everything they can. They've spaced out their workers. They've practiced good social spacing. They've retooled a lot of their facilities. They've slowed the conveyor belts down. They're staggering breaks for their employees. They're staggering lunch times. They're also staggering work shifts. Stu Leonard of the Stu Leonard's grocery chain. The doctors, nurses, and other healthcare workers fighting the virus certainly aren't immune from it. At least 9,000 health workers have tested positive, and more than two dozen have died. And it's not just the disease itself. This week, Dr. Laura Breen, medical director in the emergency room at New York Presbyterian Allen Hospital in New York, died by suicide. Her father has said she was as much a victim of coronavirus as any of the others. Dr. Greg Hammer joins us from the Stanford University School of Medicine. He's the author of Gain Without Pain, the happiness handbook for healthcare professionals. There seems a real and maybe even deadly potential for burnout here. First of all, you know, burnout is a well-known phenomenon among physicians. It is uh, manifest by emotional and physical exhaustion due to uh, external and internal stressors. With regard to burnout these days, what a lot of people don't know actually is that some physicians are virtually overwhelmed and barely sleeping. And there is actually a baseline uh, on average, more than one physician suicide a day. It's true that those physicians who are working in the real hotbeds of coronavirus activity, such as New York, I'm sure have a high incidence of burnout. Uh, there are just many factors that try one's resilience during this time. Concern about bringing the virus into their household if they have a spouse and or children, and many other issues, uh, seeing people die, which is, of course, devastating. We physicians like to be in control, at least with regard to uh, medical issues in our practice. And, and these days we have so little control. Uh, it's very uncomfortable and, and generates chronic stress. And what about other doctors who may not be directly involved in the coronavirus battle, but who may not be working because of it? More or less an opposite problem. And that is that they may uh, have had their practices cut down tremendously. They're uh, may have an overhead and they may be losing money. They're doing some telemedicine, but uh, I think that the issues of reimbursement for telemedicine visits have not been ironed out. Uh, surgery schedules have been cut to the bone, really uh, only involving emergency cases. 
And of course, none of us knows when things are going to get back to any semblance of normal. So this is a very stressful circumstance for a variety of reasons for healthcare providers. And as you say, a lot of this is because of the pandemic, but it sounds like this was a problem even before the coronavirus pandemic took hold. Absolutely. Uh, more than half of physicians manifest signs of burnout at a baseline. As you know uh, or can imagine, we're trained to have the patient come first. We are not trained in self-care. Basics like sleep, exercise, and nutrition are often deficient. And uh, we don't have any training in stress reduction per se. Is there anything that a physician or a frontline healthcare worker can do now in the middle of this to mitigate their risk of burnout and, and perhaps an even more severe consequence? Well, I would, um, you know, given that the culture of medicine and, and efficiencies of practice are not going to change during this time, I would really encourage people to focus on resilience. And again, that's the point of my book. And it starts with gratitude. And, and for physicians and also just the general population, what I would go to first, let's focus on what we have and not what we don't have. Uh, the fact is that we have a negativity bias and we tend to hold on to painful and uncomfortable events as well as other negative things we experience and thoughts we have. We can rewire our brains actually to change the way we think. The practice simply involves considering three good things that happened to you today when you're getting ready to go to bed at night. Good for all of us during this trying time, Dr. Greg Hammer at Stanford University. And coming up, the governor of Nevada tells us when he thinks his state can return to normal. I'm Aaron Katursky. You're listening to an ABC News special. This ABC News special continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special. COVID-19, what you need to know. Here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. With me right here is ABC Chief Medical Correspondent, Dr. Jen Ashton. And Dr. Jen, we know there have been some reported cases of COVID-19 in cats first, but now we're hearing about right. at least one dog. So what do we know at this point about animals and COVID-19? Well, this is evolving, so we're still learning. And the CDC are, fo are following this. USDA is following this. We know that pet owners have very close contact with pets. That is not a surprise. You and I both among them. We also know that coronaviruses can and do infect and affect animals. So that is a fact. And the other thing is we know at this point there have been a few case reports of pets cats and dogs testing positive for COVID-19 when their owners have also been infected. So then is the thought that the humans, the owners, passed it on to their pets, not vice versa? That's the theory. So here are some working theories at this point, because remember, in the concept of zoonotic diseases, usually the arrow goes from animals to humans. It appears at this point the arrow is going in the other direction. So right now, we think that this is going from humans to pets. We also think that pets who who are testing positive are not becoming seriously ill, which is obviously good news. And again, we're thinking that the animals may have picked it up just via contact with their owners who are infected. Obviously, so many pet owners, like us included, are wondering about, you know, what could happen next. Right. What is it that is being researched right now to get answers to those questions? Well, I think the most common question, and this is unknown at this point, is we know that these animals can carry COVID-19 in their nose and mouth. Obviously, those are mucous membranes. It's not known if the virus can survive on fur. It's also not known if pets 
can pass it to other pets, Mm. which is something that they're going to be following. And it's also not known at this point for sure if the pet can act like a vector or kind of can pass the virus from one human to another in the same household. So a lot that's still being looked at. Dr. Jen Ashton, you'll be back with us later in the show. Thank you. But first, let's go to Washington and ABC's Kira Phillips for a look at the latest headlines. Amy, let's get right to our developing stories. We're talking about keeping meat on American dinner tables. President Trump signing that executive order to ensure the nation's meat processing plants stay open, calling them critical infrastructure. However, union leaders saying forcing workers back on the job, potentially in harm's way without strict protections, is just, quote, dangerous. And significant technical problems continue to plague the new round of the Paycheck Protection Program. That's according to banks and credit unions alerting the Treasury and the Small Business Administration in a joint letter obtained by ABC News. The group saying the ongoing glitches are preventing them from delivering critical assistance to small businesses that desperately need it. And the nation's top infectious disease expert says sports may have to sit out this year. Dr. Anthony Fauci telling The New York Times it may all come down to whether the country can access widespread testing yielding quick results. Fauci saying this as Major League Baseball looks at regional options for limited play that would break up American and National League tradition and limit travel during this pandemic. Kira, thank you. We appreciate it. You bet. Earlier this week, Colorado and Nevada joined the Western States Pact in order to carry out a unified coronavirus strategy. Here to discuss what's happening there on the front lines of his state, Governor of Nevada, Steve Sisolak. Thank you for being with us, Governor. And I want to ask you what this means, joining this Western States Pact for your state. And does it reflect a lack of confidence in the federal response? Joining the Western Pact has been extremely important to us. You know, those governors are friends of mine. They're obviously adjoining states or nearby states. They're a big part of our tourist base that we use in Nevada here and and they use with us. Uh, I think we're exchanging best practices and coming up with a plan. The virus does not respect state borders. So I think it's important to get groups together in order to combat this virus. and, And that's what we've tried to do. I know, Governor, that you said on Twitter tomorrow you will lay out your plan for reopening your state. We know that hospitals there are preparing to resume medically necessary procedures. What else can you tell us about your plan? Well, you know, we're calling it Nevada United Roadmap to Recovery. Uh, We're going to ease some of the restrictions that we had previously as it relates to uh, retail curbside pickup. Some of our outdoor activities, we're going to, you know, loosen up some of the restrictions are. Unfortunately, we're going to have to extend the stay-at-home order a little bit because we just have not reached exactly where we want to get on the downward trajectory. Our statistics have plateaued. We've got almost 5,000 cases now in the state of Nevada and 225 fatalities. So those numbers have kind of stabilized that in our hospitalizations and intensive care unit hospitalizations have begun to decline. So that's what we're looking for to continue to Uh, bring our economy back to life a little bit. As you speak of extending those stay-at-home orders, we've heard from Mayor Goodman of Las Vegas, who said she wants casinos and businesses to open right away. When do you think the state will be ready to do this? Well, Mayor Goodman, you know, handles downtown Las Vegas. The Strip is actually in Clark County, and we've got a great partnership with uh, Chairwoman uh, Kirkpatrick at the County Commission and Reno Mayor Hillary Sheevy in particular to help us with the openings. I'm in regular contact with the resort operators. It's not something as simple as flipping a switch and suddenly everybody's gonna come back to Las Vegas. We've gotta work on the travel 
part of this. That's one of the reasons we joined with the other states, getting people to come here. Uh, the opening of the casinos and the gaming enterprises will probably come in the third or fourth phase of what we're going to end up doing here because we're just not quite ready yet to handle that type of a volume. We want everybody to come to Las Vegas. Las Vegas is a great place. Reno is a great place to come, have a good time, enjoy yourself, but it has to be safe. And that's what we need to do for our employees and for our visitors that are coming here. Our culinary union, for example, 226 at Handles, a lot of the strip, they've had 11 fatalities of their members. And I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that they don't double that number in the future. Well, we certainly thank you for your service. Nevada Governor Steve Sisolak, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. We know flying is already stressful for so many Americans, and now during the middle of this pandemic, it could feel even more daunting. Recently, a nearly full American Airlines flight departed from JFK, at least one passenger expressing alarm as social distancing measures were not being practiced. Joining us now to discuss how to keep you and your family safe while traveling is ABC News transportation correspondent Gio Benitez. And Gio, thanks for being with us. Talk a little bit about what precautions airlines are taking right now to try and ensure passenger safety. Yeah, so Amy, there's a lot of big news here because JetBlue is now making it mandatory for all passengers to wear a face covering on a plane. American and United, they are going to be offering those face coverings to customers, but they're not making it mandatory. So JetBlue is the first airline to do that. And most of the major U.S. airlines right now, they are requiring their flight attendants to wear face coverings on a plane. So what should people who are worried about social distancing on planes, what should they do? Look, there's something really easy you can do as you're booking a flight. One of the things you can do is just go ahead and see how many seats are actually empty because you can see that when you're booking a flight. You can ask them if you're booking on the phone, too. I do that all the time. And if you see that a flight is just too full, see if there's another option because that's going to be a little better for you. But you know what? To be honest, a lot of these flights are going to be pretty empty. So the airlines are saying you can move around. They're going to let you go to another seat if it makes you more comfortable. United says it's going to try to leave one seat empty next to each passenger. Delta says it's blocking middle seats. American says it's blocking half of all middle seats in the main cabin. And remember, the CDC recommends that you wear a mask if you are traveling no matter what. Yeah, that is certainly key in terms of being good to your neighbor. What about other modes of transportation, Geo? Amtrak, many bus services we know have been hit pretty hard. Are they taking similar measures like we've seen in these airlines? Yeah, so we spoke with Amtrak, and right now they're only recommending these face coverings if you're there uh, in their terminals and there on their trains. We spoke with Greyhound, though, and they said that if you're in an area that mandates face masks in public, they say you're going to have to wear that in their terminal and on their buses. All right, NGO, we all know summer's right around the corner. I know a lot of us are thinking about how we're going to get around, and, you know, you think about your own car. It's probably the safest way to travel if you need to know who's been there and who's touched what. But what should people know before they hit the road? So we've got some really good news here because gas prices are incredibly low. The national average right now, $1.77 a gallon. But you know what? Uh, I have some relatives who were down in Florida when this whole pandemic started. And right now they've decided they're going to drive up to New Jersey. They're going to drive home to New Jersey because they just want to control their environment just a little bit. But I've reminded them, as I'm reminding you right now, if you're taking one of those long road trips, plan ahead. Call these hotels because many of them are just closed, Amy. Yeah, great advice there, Gio. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. This ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know continues after this. You're 
listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, What You Need to Know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. Dr. Jen Ashton joining us now with answers to your latest questions about this outbreak. And we'll get started with the first one, Jen. If the coronavirus keeps mutating, does it become weaker? This is such an interesting question because we know that the class of family that the coronavirus comes from is prone to mutation. We call it highly mutagenic. But there is a lot of controversy and myth about whether or not just a virus mutating necessarily makes it worse. In some cases, as this question asked, maybe it could make it weaker as it adapts to its new host, which are human beings. Um, so right now, this is we don't know the answer to this. And there are reports out of China that because they see sequence the genetic fingerprint of this virus early on. As we test around the world, we are comparing it to that initial fingerprint. And there is evidence that there are about 30 strains of this coronavirus now. So, yes, it is slowly mutating. There's some suggestion that in some cases it's making it stronger, but that is not conclusive at this point. So, Time will tell. And that would also explain why, if you have antibodies, it doesn't necessarily mean you're immune if there is that much, Correct. that many strains mm-hmm. going on. All right. Yep. Next question. Has there been any research on the relationship between COVID-19 cases and the amount of time people spend outdoors in different states and countries? No, but this is what is going to be so important as we go into warmer months, not just as a country, but in different parts of the world. Because remember, when we're in our summer, the southern hemisphere is in their winter. It would make sense that as people are outdoors more, they're not touching those hot spots that people who are confined indoors. And so maybe that's reducing the, the rate of transmission. But again, how this virus will respond to changes in humidity, sunlight, people's behavior being outdoors, we'll have to see. All right. Next question. Are there any notable similarities researchers are finding with asymptomatic COVID-19 patients? They don't know. So this is what's really interesting. There have been reports from the CDC that 25% of people known to be positive with COVID-19 show no symptoms. Then Iceland saw it at 50%. Now a recently published study in, done in people in enclosed populations, and in this case jails or prisons, found over 80% of positive cases occurred in people with no symptoms. So yes, we need to study that population to learn, is there something different about the host? Hmm. Or are they showing some atypical symptoms? We don't know, but remember, asymptomatic infection is thought to be massively important with COVID-19. Okay, Dr. Jen Ashton, thank you. And you can submit your questions to Dr. Jen on her Instagram at Dr. J Ashton. Well, the coronavirus pandemic has not only taken a toll on our physical and financial well-beings, but it's had a huge impact on our mental health. And in minority communities where COVID-19 has hit the hardest, there was a long-standing taboo around mental illness concerns. So here to give us more insight on the mental health stigma in African-American communities is associate professor of psychiatry at Duke University and author of Black Man in a White Coat, Dr. Damon Tweedy. Thanks for being with us. Why do you think that that's been such a tough area for that group to seek therapy? Well, I think it's a couple of things. If you think about sort of the history of African-Americans in the United States, the narrative is often around um, overcoming adversity and oppression through uh, faith and family and community. And if you contrast that with the, the mental health narrative, historically what we think about is something that's largely white and is more kind of sterile 
focusing on individuals, not groups, and also catering to a more sort of wealthy sort of clientele. So you, so you can see that there is this kind of a clash right there. Um, when you think about the idea of a, of a black person sort of going to a stranger and sharing their, um, ex- uh, often who's white, and sharing their experiences, you can sort of see how that would, would pose a challenge uh, for sure. And then now, and then when we talk about the aspect of being a male, you have to sort of superimpose the idea that there's a broader sort of idea about masculinity and being tough and, and manning, manning up and not being weak. And so that's often accentuated among African-Americans. And so you see that there's this sort of combination of both the, the racial side and then there's just the sort of being the, the male side. And so black men sort of get that kind of perfect storm, if you will, uh, that kind of uh, can scare them from seeking mental health treatment. Yeah, and it's especially unfortunate during these times because we know black men are among those hit the hardest from coronavirus and the economic repercussions of this pandemic. So talk about why their mental health is more important than ever before. Well, yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is to think about is that when we, we say physical health and mental health, we often just keep those as two separate things. And that's one of the problems, I think, that we continue to deal with both in medicine and but also more broadly in society. Physical health certainly impacts mental health and vice versa. So if your mental health is uh, adversely affected, that in turn will also impact your physical health. And, uh, and so they're, they're, they're very uh, intertwined. And as you said, um, black people are often uh, bearing the brunt of this um, virus in terms of um, you know, a lot of early data is, is uh, just suggesting this. I even recently read something in the Washington Post about my, uh, my own hometown in Prince George's County, Maryland, talking about the disparities there. Um, so it's a really, so, so it's also a very personal um, thing to me as well. But, but the two things are certainly very intertwined, physical health and mental health. So it's really important to tend to both in this time. Yeah. And self-awareness isn't something that most of us possess at most times. So how do you know if your mental health is in jeopardy? What are some signs you should look out for? Yeah, I mean, there are many things. So, I mean, uh, changes and significant changes in sleep patterns, eating patterns, being more irritable or withdrawn from people that you are uh, close to. I mean, those are some some of, some of the uh, more early red flags and there are many other things as well that you can think about. As you mentioned, we're often not self-aware. So sometimes it, in, it involves listening to those who are close to us. Like, uh, you know, many people that I see, their wife or their um, sister, husband, whoever will say, you know what, you, you're not yourself and you should get, you should come talk to someone about that. So I think that's a, also a big piece, being open to listening to those around you. Yeah, I think that's that. really important. The problem for a lot of people, though, is the financial part of this. So where can people go for help if they feel like they don't have the resources uh, or the finances to seek it? That's a great point. So, you know, uh, a couple of issues there. So, um, you know, the mental health system is, I mean, there's a lot of problems that we're still working on. They're trying to get better. And even in the midst of this, we're trying to sort of move towards more teletherapy services and things of that of that nature. Um, but, you know, even before you get to that point of actually seeking a professional, um, if you did a Google search on just black therapists, there's a lot of really good information that, that comes up. I mean, there's information about uh, how to find someone locally. And then from there, you know, who's, who may be an African-American or someone who, who can relate to your experiences more directly. Um, a lot of good resources. There's one, for, there's one for black girls. There's one for black men. Um, and then even within those, there's also uh, blogs and, and apps and uh, Facebook and other sort of social media presences that someone can sort of kind of look through and sort of give them an idea of things that they can do to help themselves. But also at the same time, resources within their local community to sort of reach out for. So I would encourage people to sort of uh, take a look at that as well. And know that you're not alone in this. Dr. Damon Tweedy, thank you so much for being with us today. Really important conversation. Yeah, thank you so much. And still ahead as we continue here, the Hollywood producer teaming tech with medicine to provide COVID-19 relief. And they say she's marvelous, the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, that is, a.k.a. Rachel Brosnahan. She joins us with what she's doing on behalf of homeless teens and how you can help. 
This ABC News special continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. Don't you know We're back now with our spotlight on small business staying strong and vital against the odds in this pandemic. Meet the gang at Spiffy in North Carolina, keeping it clean. Hi, I'm Scott Wingo, co-founder and CEO of Spiffy. We started Spiffy in 2014 here in Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina, and have expanded to 17 locations and 300 employees. What we do at Spiffy is on-demand car care, wash, detail, and oil change. When the pandemic hit, within 21 days, our business was down over 90%. What we discovered when we worked with our chemical provider, they have a sister company that sells janitorial supplies to hospitals. And what we learned is they have a family of disinfectants that are COVID-19 effective according to the EPA and CDC. So we took those chemicals and we started offering our customers disinfecting services. Some of them actually came and said, hey, can you help us uh, disinfect our facilities? So we've added a whole new line of business that literally didn't exist 30 days ago. When the pandemic hit, we had to reduce our staff and furlough them about two thirds. We've been able to bring back about 100 staff members um, with this new business. Hi, I'm Mike Tolzman. I'm uh, Vice President of Operations and Training uh, for Spiffy. We've been in the vehicle disinfection business for a while. We are lucky to have some great chemical vendors that we work with that uh, have supplied us with even bigger and better chemicals to help treat larger facilities, uh, office buildings, warehouses, uh, you name it, we can do it. We use all EPA certified products. We have products for hard and soft surfaces, gaseous products, and we have a new product we call the Spiffy Hydro Mister that actually uses uh, water mist to disinfect large areas. Smaller spaces, we can use the gas. Surfaces, we can use one of our spray-on chemicals. And if you have a uh, very large facility, our new Spiffy Hydro Mister is made for doing uh, large thousands of square feet. My advice to other small businesses, talk to your customers um, and try to understand what are their concerns, how is this pandemic affecting them, and what can you do to help? We're glad to be out here uh, helping America get back on its feet. We want to help make sure that uh, every workplace, when people start coming back to work, is safe and sanitized. Wow, that is pivoting with a purpose. Our thanks to the Spiffy team in Raleigh-Durham for sharing with us that inside look. Manufacturers from various industries have decided to shift their focus and produce emergency medical equipment during this crisis. And now actor and filmmaker Mark Casson is helping get those products to the places where they are needed the most. Mark, along with his media company, Like Minded Media Ventures, has created the COVID Help Network. The network connects manufacturers with states and healthcare facilities in need of medical supplies. So here to discuss his program's efforts is Mark Casson himself. So, Mark, thank you so much. For being with us. Tell us a little bit about how the COVID Help Network works. Um, it's pretty simple. Basically, you log on if you have if you have either a manufacturing operation or any kind of company that can make any kind of thing that could be useful, uh, whether you're a medical company or a non-medical company. And there are a bunch of hospitals and governments that are also logged on that can see anybody who posts anything they have to offer, whether it's a service or a good. And they can connect directly with each other. Now, what types of things are you offering and creating and making? 
Well, uh, you know, we actually, what's kind of great about it is we aren't offering anything. All of these great people across the communities are offering all sorts of things. For example, there are companies like Lisa Mattress who are creating bed kits for hospitals that are trying to be, uh, they're having to, to uh, grow. There is uh, Kaima Fashion, uh, who are, uh, is a company that makes dresses that are now making reusable medical gowns. There's Rothy Shoes that's created a uh, open innovation network that has, le- that has looped together many, many different uh, people across fashion. Um, there is a small town pharmacist from Lake Hills Pharmacy in Austin, Texas, who's been able to sell masks to the University of Vermont and to clinicians in California. That's incredible, because I, I know you've been working mostly with small or mid-sized businesses. What has the response been like? It's been great. I mean, you know, what's been really neat for me personally is you're watching folks who just wanted to help and knew that they had a skill set or they had an ability, but they weren't exactly sure how to help. And so anybody who's either had a network of sewers, like people from the company called the 19th Amendment, really wanted to figure out how they could put their people and their tools to work. Uh, And what's been really interesting from a small business standpoint is a lot of these folks, like the 19th Amendment, have been able to put their sewers to work who would normally be making gowns for literally Project Runway. But because that's not in production right now, those people have a skill set that is useful. And so there have been people all across America that have welcomed the challenge to be able to help and also put their communities to work. Yeah, so and keeping their employees really uh, working in, 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 at the same time. This is a phenomenal yeah. uh, situation here. And Mark Kasson, we really appreciate all that you've done to uh, make this all work, to connect everyone with one another. It really is remarkable. And when we come back, the star of the highly acclaimed series, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, on a campaign to help homeless kids. Stay with us. This ABC News special continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. Covenant House is an organization well known for supporting homeless youth across the country. And with the coronavirus pandemic, that need has never been greater. The marvelous Mrs. Maisel star, Rachel Brosnahan, is working with the group to help get that word out. And we are so happy to have Rachel with us now. Rachel, thank you for being with us. I'm a huge fan of your show, but I'm also a huge fan of you. You've been working to help raise awareness about Covenant House for some time. Tell us how you first got involved with the group. Well, I first got involved about eight years ago. I was doing a Broadway show and there was an event that the Broadway community was putting on called a sleep out. And I spent the night getting to know some of the incredibly brave young people who call Covenant House home, some of the dedicated staff. And that night profoundly changed my life. And I've been involved ever since. And tell us about some of the ways Covenant House helps in this community. Covenant House has a presence in 31 cities across the U.S., Canada, and Latin America, and they help provide vital support and services to young people overcoming homelessness. But the thing that sets them apart is that they're so much more than just a shelter. They provide, of course, safe shelter, food, clean clothes, but they also have so many other services that help set people up for long-term success. So they have educational services, job training, a medical center, mental health services, legal services, and so, so much more. Covenant House is working really hard to accommodate this crisis and 
almost 80%, maybe more at this point, of young people at Covenant House have lost their jobs. Covenant Houses all over the country are trying to set aside isolation centers for sick and symptomatic young people. They need PPE in their medical centers. There are more young people eating at the Covenant House than ever before since they are trying to shelter in place. They just need support to be able to provide as many services as possible. So anything at all that you can give at covenanthouse.org. There's links in my bios on social media, Instagram and Twitter. Anything at all that you can give is so, so appreciated. We so appreciate your advocacy, Rachel Brosnahan. Thank you for all that you do. We appreciate it. And we're going to turn now to Dr. Jen Ashton for final thoughts today. Amy, what I really wanted to talk about today is what the World Health Organization is bringing attention to, and they're calling it an infodemic. That is the spread in this pandemic setting of misinformation, which during any kind of a crisis, especially a health crisis, can not only be harmful, it can actually be hurtful overtly. Um, and I think that the reason for that is that sometimes when, it, when a lot of people are trying to give information, they either will just misspeak, you know, unintentionally, or they fall victim to this tendency of wanting to make it seem like they know the answer. And I think in medicine, and this has been a perfect example of that, it's so important to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And what makes us uncomfortable is uncertainty. So we have to say what we know, say what we don't know, and always be open to the fact that there are things that we don't know that we might not even know yet. Dr. Really important. Thank you very you much. Bet. And that's our program for today. I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening. ABC News. Honored. Winner of four Edward R. Murrow Awards. ABC News. America's number one news choice. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.